0: Hello, and welcome to episode 200 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pachnik here, as always, with
1: Jason Rabinowitz, and welcome to the big two zero zero. Ian, what do we have planned for today? Uh, some confetti? Any, any pizza coming my way? Anything?
0: Streamers, balloons, we've got two thousand drones are oh, gonna draw. Look, there they the are. I, I logo. see it all
1: now. Yeah. Unfortunately, this yep. is a podcast, so you can't see it. But no, there's can't. confetti and, and lasers and all sorts of fun things happening here that you just can't see, unfortunately.
0: I was gonna get like one of those party, the blowy honky things. I don't know what you call it, that just make noise, and then I was like, Why would we subject our listeners to that? It just seems mean We can
1: commit to never having an air horn. On this particular there you podcast, go. there yeah. you go.
0: We do have a good episode to celebrate our 200th. Lots happening this week, and our episode 200 corresponds to the run-up to the the last delivery of the uh, Boeing 747. So we'll have a little bit of discussion this week, and and we'll talk more next week. You know, as the delivery takes place. But let's just dive in with what happened today, the 25th of January, Wednesday. Boeing reported its fourth quarter and full year results for 2022. They corporate financial reporting always boggles my mind because you can say we lost 5 billion last
1: year. We lost 5 billion dollars last year. But things went well. Yeah, things are looking up. I got my uh, quarterly text from my dad about Boeing's earnings. Hi dad, if you're I know you're listening, but this time for the first time in many quarters, it was him saying, "Oh, look at Boeing. What the hell's wrong with them? They lost so much money." And then I could finally say that, "Hey, things, you know, could be worse and they're looking up for Boeing." So, that's something we haven't been able to say for a very long time.
0: Yeah, they reported a little over 5 billion dollar loss for last year but they did have uh, positive free cash flow. And more importantly, the improvement in the situation continues. So lots of things that, that Boeing was concerned with as far as suppliers and the supply chain issues that Boeing and every other aerospace company has been dealing with, those seem to be improving, though they have Slightly pushed the rate increases for the 737 back a little bit. But then again, so has Airbus with their rate increase, the A320 family. So That kind of commensurate with everything that's happening in the industry, not necessarily a Boeing issue. But things are are looking up for them financially. Issues remain still with 787 Rework. That's costing more because of some supplier issues that they've had. Obviously, the ramp up with the, the 737 Max is going a little bit slower. The one bright spot that did come out was that they've stopped remarketing the 737 MAX aircraft that were built originally for Chinese airlines. So, a few months ago, we talked about how Boeing said, Well, you know, we built all these aircraft, we built all these MAX for Chinese airlines, and they haven't taken delivery of them because the aircraft's not back in service in China yet, and they're just sitting around doing nothing, and we have no idea when they're going to go home to their airline. And so they said, We've developed this plan, we're going to try and place them with other airlines. And today they announced they've stopped that remarketing effort for the time being, at least.
1: And the positive uh, earning report also comes on the heels from last week's news that NASA and the US government would fund Boeing's possible next generation aircraft, the transsonic truss braced wing aircraft, to the tune of nearly half a billion dollars. So I'm sure investors are, are happy about that and Boeing is happy about that. But things finally looking cautiously optimistic, let's go with. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. Then on again, the other hand, <laughs> yeah, it is not all good news. By the time you hear this podcast on Friday, we will already know the fate of Boeing's arraignment that is happening tomorrow, January 26th. Uh, Ian, why don't you tell us a little about what's happening? Because I even had to ask you before we started recording what the heck is happening.
0: We are a full service podcast today, my friend. So We've discussed this and I'll put a link to the show notes to the episode where we talk about deferred prosecution agreement that Boeing entered into with the Department
1: of Justice. Which nobody liked, by the way. Nobody outside of Boeing in the DOJ. This was the deferred prosecution agreement that everyone looked at and said, how is it possible that Boeing could get off this easy? And Turns out maybe they're not.
0: Yeah. So this was the DPA that the Department of Justice and Boeing agreed on in January 2021, right at the end of the Trump administration. They agreed on this in January 2021. And what that set aside was a Boeing agreed to a compensation plan for its airline customers the families of the victims of the two crashes, both Lion Air and Ethiopian, and they agreed to pay a criminal monetary penalty. So, the monetary penalty, all to be so that the DOJ would not prosecute Boeing. So, they agreed to a $243 million monetary penalty and compensation payments of almost $1.8 billion. And then the crash victim. Families received 500 million dollars as part of the victim compensation fund that was set up separately.
1: Also, remember that big part of the DPA was that Boeing was paying money out to the affected airlines that had already effectively been paid. So the prosecution agreement stipulated that Boeing had to pay money that it had already had paid, which, to me, doesn't really seem like that much of a punishment at
0: all. Right. Yeah. That was one of the big criticisms at the time, that most of this money was going to to customers that had really already or mostly reached agreements with Boeing on their own. So Then what happened is late last year, a group of families sued to say, we should have been consulted as part of this deferred prosecution agreement, under what's called the Crime Victims Rights Act, and that affords crime victims specific rights in the cases of when there are plea agreements and sentencing and things like that. And so that suit went before a judge, and last week or the judge agreed, and then last week ordered Boeing to come to to Texas for an arraignment. So Boeing's lawyers need to appear in court, and at that point, and by the time you all listen to this podcast, you'll know which way things have gone. Boeing is going to have to plead either guilty or, or not guilty to the charges. It's possible, and, and we don't know where this all ends up. It's possible because of the ruling that the DPA violated the family's Rights Under the Crime Victims Rights Act, That the DPA can possibly be unwound, but we're not to that point yet. John Oster, I had a good piece this week in the Air Current about Boeing's Catch 22 is basically, we've already accepted responsibility in entering into the deferred prosecution agreement. So It's difficult for Boeing to walk into the courtroom and say, well, not guilty at the arraignment. But if they say guilty at the arraignment, that also opens up a wide variety of, of legal issues as well. So, We'll see what happens. We'll know what happens by the time the podcast comes out. But this is the thinking behind all of this so that you kind of have a background going in. And certainly we'll talk more next week about the results of Thursday's arraignment.
1: Yeah, we'll have to see which poison pill the Boeing lawyers swallow in this case. I'm very interested to see where this ends up. And and again, by the time this podcast comes out, we will already know. But we are sitting on pins and needles at this point, unfortunately.
0: And separately, two European airlines are now suing Boeing because of this agreement. So, LOT, the, the Polish airline, and Smartwings, which is based in, in Czechia, they are suing Boeing, saying that Boeing has failed to abide by the terms of the deferred prosecution agreement and not paid compensation to those two airlines. So they are requesting that the judge separately that the judge reconsider the settlement that Boeing reached with the DOJ. And so they're arguing that that Boeing has an obligation to pay out this as part of this 1.8 billion fund, they need to pay that out fairly. And obviously, fairly includes them getting a chunk of that money, and so they began challenging that last year, saying Boeing hasn't said how they're administering this. You know, this money. I guess theoretically, they could have given 1.8 billion to one airline. That's not what they've done, but they're saying we don't know, and so Lot and Smartwings are saying we want to know how they're doing this. What are the criteria? And also, we want some money because we need to be compensated. Boeing for its part has said, we've compensated you separately. Also, you bear the responsibility because you are in Europe and EASA, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, said the 737 MAX had to be grounded. We didn't say that. And so it's not our problem. So another lawsuit to keep an eye on to see if this goes anywhere or if it gets folded into the other suit or if it just kind of goes away and
1: there's a settlement
0: reached which is usually how these things go but who knows now
1: yeah none of this stuff is coming to a conclusion anytime soon apparently
0: no no this will go on for for quite some time and keep in mind both of these airlines are current and future waiting on additional deliveries of 737 Max so there's still a customer relationship here which i think is is not lost on either party Let's talk about what's happening next week. Next Tuesday, the 31st of January, 2023, the final 747 aircraft will be delivered from Boeing to a customer.
1: Well, that's bittersweet. Definitely, it is nice that Boeing is now confirmed to be making a big deal of this. They're inviting media out to Everett, for the delivery ceremony. Things are happening. The final 747 is is being seen on its way out the door as it is supposed to be. They will be webcasting or they'll have a a live video of the delivery ceremony at 4 p.m. Eastern on the 31st. That's 1 p.m. local time out there on the West Coast on the 31st. It is the 1,574th. 747 in the 55 years of production. That is what uh, Boeing has in their release at least. It doesn't specifically say that the aircraft will fly away and depart on that day. That part is unclear, but the ceremonies, the festivities, the, the goodbyes will be had on January 31st.
0: I would assume that the aircraft will be around for the ceremony. So if anything it'll leave late in the day and I would assume it'll leave the next day because obviously they're going to have it kind of in a place of prominence to engage in the in the festivities and the ceremony and everything like that. I would assume it'll leave not on the day of the the actual the contractual delivery and the ceremony and things like that, but keep an eye out the flight obviously will be I'm going to assume one of our most tracked in quite some time, though we have had some pretty highly tracked flights uh, in the past I, six I months. I it's so. going
1: to be well tracked, but not nearly the same as like some football coach going from one city to the other on a private jet. That apparently, you can't top those that these days, but- Oh, sure you can. Yeah, you can't. No. But we do have some good news about the last 747. It has been confirmed and we have seen pictures of the Joe Sutter decal applied to the final 747. It is small. It is very, very nice and it is classy. It is elegant. It is it is exactly what we wanted to see, but a lot smaller than we wanted to see. It's kind of a sticker. Yeah, I feel like it's like a bumper sticker. Like they ordered them, but the wrong size. Like they they ordered they ordered the sticker for for a car or a van. It's really hard <laughs> shopping for this stuff on Amazon because you just you don't get a sense of scale. You need to put a banana next to it for scale. But it, it, it's we've seen decals for much stupider smaller things be much larger than this. How much can one decal cost, Jason? $10. I don't know. But it's disappointing how small it is. and and We don't know if that's – Boeing didn't want to spring for a larger one or the customer didn't want a larger one. I don't know, but it's pretty small. I, I, it needs to be bigger, but I, I'm happy that there's one there at all. I'm happy th- about the content that's on it. It does not do – the size of the aircraft justice. It's hard to get a scale from the, the pictures, just how big it is. It's maybe a couple feet in height at best. It's better than nothing, but it, it's certainly not as grand as we would have expected or hoped for on this aircraft.
0: Yeah, yeah. But the delivery ceremony should be good. It seems that Boeing hopefully has. Listen to the, this podcast, I assume, and taken our, our criticism of kind of the lack of pomp and circumstance to heart. And it seems like there's going to be plenty of pomp and, and at least a little bit of circumstance for the actual delivery ceremony. So that'll be good. I mean, it'll be fun to watch and, and see. Unfortunately, I, I can't make it out there, but I am looking forward to watching it online. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the live stream.
1: Trying to think, what is the next kind of like Ceremonial final delivery of an aircraft that could possibly be on this scale, and nothing really comes to mind maybe the seven thirty seven in a couple at this <laughs> rate decades from now, but certainly not the a three twenty family anytime soon I don't think there will be any love lost for the a three forty the a three eighty already happened there was a little circumstance, but not all that much i don't even think Airbus streamed it on their own. What would be next? What would be the next major Final delivery that anyone seems to care about. I mean, the seven six seven. I was going to say, yeah, but they're going to keep pumping those out as freighters and military aircraft, so those aren't going anywhere anytime soon.
0: I mean, I guess the well, that one already happened, or no, it, it no, it hasn't happened yet. The last triple seven, the last non X triple seven. I guess, but
1: that that family lives on in the 777. right. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I got nothing. So what I'm trying to say is, this is the Last major last delivery that we will see for a very long time because all of the other uh, aircraft families have already been eliminated and they're they're at the end of the life, and anything that's remaining has an, an iteration coming after yeah. whether it's the max or the the neo or or any a new generation aircraft I don't think we're going to see an event like this for for quite a long time
0: I can't think of anything that even approaches this scale uh, or this magnitude. So yeah, if you can think of something, emails at podcast.fr24.com because I'm racking my brain and I can't even come I got close nothing. to the – I got nothing. I mean, nothing can come close to 7%. But I can't even come even like remotely no. in the same universe. No, there's nothing to this. So there you go. But that'll be fun to watch on Tuesday, the 31st of January. Good news in Somalia – which is oh, okay. always a a great phrase to say, so a celebratory press release today from the the Ministry of transport coming out of, out of Somalia Airlines are happy, air traffic controllers are happy the mogadishu f i r has been reclassified as class A airspace, so basically it allows managed airspace to to kind of airlines to operate through mm-hmm properly managed airspace. So flights need to be cleared by air traffic control, they're maintaining separation, they're ensuring, you know, safe passage through this area. Up until now, flights they haven't necessarily been on their own, but there's been limited availability of air traffic control resources and that Changes now, so it allows a lot more airlines to take advantage of this particular space if they want. There are still certain considerations when overflying Somalia, but this is a good step in, in kind of resuming normalcy uh, in, in the skies
1: above Somalia. Yeah, and it's a quite a large area. IATA says it covers the landmass surrounding the horn of Africa and it extends out into the Indian Ocean and it links the African subcontinent south of Ethiopia with the Middle East and Indian subcontinent. So this is this is good I'm sure a lot of route planners for the Middle Eastern carriers specifically that use this airspace will be relieved to know that uh, this is now class A and there's slightly less risk associated with flying over this airspace.
0: Yeah. This doesn't say anything about what's happening on the ground, but now it allows airlines the ability to safely operate you know, with the help of air traffic control. So certainly a good development.
1: Yes, and IATA does say that the reclassification of the airspace and the operational resumption of air traffic control in the Mogadishu FIR has been made possible with the installation and commissioning of modern radio navigation and other technological infrastructure. It a successful trial, which began last May, so this isn't just kind of a, a paperwork checkbox thing. There was actual infrastructure work happening on the ground in Mogadishu and the surrounding area to make this possible, so that's that's great news. Yeah. There's no bad news about this, which I
0: really enjoy. We love
1: good news. Here's the good news.
0: Now, for some not so good news. A few episodes ago, we talked about the complete and total failure, which is really what complete means. The last and final boarding call. (laughs) Yeah. The last and final boarding call. This This is our last and final boarding call. We talked about the failure of the air traffic control system in the Philippines. And it went down. It was down for quite some time. And flights in the in the Manila FIR were halted. Flights that were in the air had to go around, they were turned around, flights couldn't take off, flights couldn't land. It was a big deal and a huge problem. Now we know why the system went down. And similar to the issues affecting the NOTAM system in the US a few weeks later, it was accidental where something went wrong and then something went more wrong. In this particular case, backup power systems failed, and then technicians trying to fix the problem created a power surge across the system that basically fried all of these computers. Whoops. That run the system. That's never good. I will quote an article from from the Register that is detailing the system. I just love this phrase. The problem exists one because its blowers conked out, and the other simply failed to come online. So that was the Civil Aviation Authority of the Philippines huh. Director General Emmanuel Tomeo talking about the two failed UPSs. Then. The power surge occurred when technicians tried to bypass the damaged GPS and sent 380 volts into the system instead of the intended 220, quote, thus frying the terminals that receive satellite data from airplanes and air traffic management systems.
1: Whoops. similar to the scenario that I actually mentioned last week where yeah, it's it, it, it right. probably similar to some sort of power issue that we had here with in New York with the MTA where the power went out and backup systems didn't work as expected. That's kind of exactly what happened here. There are two UPSs, which are uninterruptible power supplies that are supposed to kick in immediately if there's a loss of power. They they just didn't work in this case. and They tried to bypass it and made the situation even worse, which is not great. But they, they do say it's a system that was introduced in 2010. They implemented it in 2018. So the system is midlife, but clearly they need to uh, improve or modernize it. They say, yeah, power management and power backup is a a tricky thing to fall over to backup systems flawlessly and without interruption. In that case, it did not happen here. And technicians, unfortunately, made it much, much worse than it
0: needed to be. Failover is never easy. Yeah. and It happens. Unfortunately, they then fried all the equipment, and I don't even want to know how much had to be replaced. The article doesn't really go into that, but I assume it was not cheap or easy to do, but they managed to get everything back online. We talked a few weeks ago about the release of the final report by Ethiopian investigators into the 737 MAX crash outside of Addis Ababa. The NTSB had a lot to say then, and they said, we're reviewing the report because they hadn't seen the final report in its final form. So They said, we're going to review it and we'll be back with more. This oh, and they're, week, back, they're with back with more. With more. <laughs> The new comments, and I'm quoting the NTSB's press release here, the new comments provided to the EAIB's investigator in charge detail the NTSB's concerns about several of the findings in the final accident report. This is in addition to the comments the NTSB made public on December 27th on the EAIB's final accident report, which detailed the investigation's insufficient attention to the human performance aspect of the accident. So, What happened is the NTSB had read the final report prior to its release. A version of the final report. And they had provided comments to the Ethiopians that they said should be included. The Ethiopian investigators did not include those. And so the NTSB requested, as per ICAO Annex 13 procedures, that their comments be appended to the final report. They didn't do that. And they made adjustments or changes to the final report that the NTSB didn't see. So these comments reflect. Those changes that the NTSB has now had a chance to review. And one of the big things that we talked about a few weeks ago, but the NTSB really goes into some detail here, was about the electrical faults with the AOA vein where Ethiopian investigators detail electrical faults with the AOA vein and talk about how that could have contributed to the AOA disagreements, which could have led to all the other failures that led to the crash of this aircraft. And then the NTSB says, quote, for the following reasons, the US team believes that an electrical failure affecting the left AOA sensor did not occur before the left AOA veins impact with a foreign object. So the NTSB says all of our evidence points to a foreign object ripping the AOA vein off the aircraft. Logic dictates that it would be a bird because that's the most likely cause and birds are known to be in the vicinity. NTSB talks about the fact that it shouldn't matter because the vein heater function wasn't necessary. The conditions at the time were above freezing and there was no moisture present meaning that ice couldn't form to affect – So the heater's operational status was irrelevant in this case. So the loss of electrical current in the vane heater would not impact the AOA sensor output. The AOA sensor would function normally because there was no icing condition to affect the AOA vane. They also say that none of the electrical signals that are being fed from the AOA resolver, so the computer, were affected Getting to the FDR. So there were no problems shown on the FDR. Those problems would have been visible on the FDR. We would have seen an electrical fault in the data coming to the flight data recorder. We didn't see that. Then they say they completely disregarded all of the available evidence that was collected and evaluated based on our evaluation of how the AOA vein is made, how the fault tree analysis that Collins Aerospace performed, and goes through a number of scenarios that this is the most likely case. And they keep going for a number of pages about the AOA vein, because I, I think that's Something that the NTSB feels that the EAIB's focus on is erroneous in this case. It's not the issue wasn't with the failure of the, the AOA vein or an electrical issue. It was a clear separation that led to the AOA disagreement.
1: Yeah. Not not to to AOA
0: a bunch of times. Angle of attack, a bunch of agreements. And then they go on to talk about the MCAS-related failures and some of the issues that they have with the report there, basically saying, Boeing sent out the FCOM bulletin. The FAA's airworthiness directive was issued. The EAB says that Boeing didn't send out any information. The NTSB is saying, no, it was published well before this particular crash. so There was time to read and understand what the changes were and what this information was. We'll put a link to all of this in the show notes because it gets very, very technical, very, very fast. But I think the overarching thing here is that the NTSB has twice come out to issue, I don't want to say corrections,
1: but to say, okay, we don't think this is what happened. Yeah. To have the NTSB or any other investigatory body raise objections like this one time is absolutely unprecedented. For it to happen twice, it goes beyond unprecedented. It is really, really not a good look for the Ethiopian investigators here that the NTSB has taken such an unprecedented, firm tone of disagreement against the EAIB report. This is not the kind of thing you want to see in an investigation report since this has obviously ramifications across the entire industry with this aircraft. Really disappointing to see this, but I'm happy that the NTSB is sticking to its principles here and is putting out These rebuttals, I guess you would call that it wants to get their message across. And this is their only method of doing that at this point.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see where this goes from here. The NTSB has said that they're going to discuss the issue at ICAO. They have some problems with how the investigation was conducted. So, we'll see what comes of that. But for the moment, I think we've reached a stopping point as far as what new could come out from the NTSB. That doesn't preclude other parties to the investigation from saying something. The French BEA comes to mind, but they've already issued some statements. So I'm not sure if they're going to say anything else now that they've had a chance to digest the final report a bit further, but we'll see if anything else comes up from anybody. I think two weeks ago, we talked about Qatar's ongoing dispute with Airbus about. It's A350s. Over the past year or so, we've talked about their legal wrangling in London, Airbus canceling all of Qatar Airways orders, the A350 being grounded in Qatar, but not being grounded anywhere else. Partially grounded, not the whole fleet, just partially. The aircraft that are affected. The impacted aircraft grounded, yeah. Yeah. Affected by the surface degradation, the paint cracking, and then some effects underneath that paint. The argument of how far those effects go and whether or not it's a flight safety issue is basically the crux of the entire argument. Now, Qatar Airways is very upset because
1: Airbus has fixed the problem, kind of. Kind of, moving so, forward on on future well, A350 yeah. deliveries that does not include the aircraft that Qatar already has. So Airbus has changed the –
0: copper foil that sits underneath the skin of the aircraft, which acts as a conducive layer in case the aircraft is hit by lightning. They've changed the foil from a, I guess, solid foil into a perforated foil to what Airbus says is that it's not a reaction to the skin paint issue with Qatar. It's a reaction to the foil itself is heavy, and so we put holes in it, and so now it's lighter.
1: And uh, it also has other benefits. Same outcome. (laughs) It
0: also has. looking for right. So Qatar is like, well, obviously this is in response to all of the issues we've been having. So we need to know more about this. Erebus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've been planning this for years. We filed patents years ago. This predates anything that we had planned. This is a weight saving issue. So all of this is now before the courts and we'll see what happens. Qatar wants more information about what Airbus is doing. Airbus says, "No, we don't want to give you that. It's, you know, trade secret information. We don't want to share exactly what it is." But another round of Qatar versus Airbus, and this one is I guess interesting in the fact that it could offer a solution to the issue, but it doesn't seem like we're working towards that at this point.
1: Yeah, and I am here for this court battle. This one just keeps on going and it's interesting and I'm sure people at Boeing are sitting back and watching this eagerly as well. I'm sure they would love to know what Airbus is up to with these particular patents. Cause <laughs> Boeing also suffers from paint degradation on its seven eight sevens, particularly on the wing. I know lots of people have seen seven eight sevens with horribly scarred wings with lots of speed tape on them, so Maybe there's something Boeing could learn from this if Qatar is able to get the, as you put in our show notes, secret sauce. There you go.
0: Yeah. So that's an update on, on a very, very, very long court case that no end is expensive, it, too. Very. This is an interesting one. We talked about this in, well, a year ago almost now. In last February, we pondered what was going to happen to aircraft that are operated by Russian airlines. And It took almost a year, but now Russian regulators have given Russian airlines the go-ahead to start cannibalizing aircraft without approval from the manufacturers. So They can now install parts on aircraft, parts that are not spare parts, but are yanked out of other aircraft onto their aircraft without seeking approval from the manufacturers.
1: Yeah. It's obviously not great that the Russian airlines are having to do this, but it's not The problem here is that it's not something that is not done. This is frequently done with, with, I would say, all airlines in the world. They will take parts from grounded aircraft to supply the remaining aircraft. We've seen this from Delta harvesting parts out of its grounded 75s or 76s to to here in Russia. The problem here is that Russia is granting its airlines the authority to do it without the permission of of Airbus or Boeing or, or any of the other OEMs that they've taken aircraft from, which further makes these aircraft completely unmarketable to ever be operated outside of Russia, probably ever again. Yeah, these aircraft were certified and registered in Bermuda or Ireland in the past, but certainly no one in Bermuda or Ireland at this point is giving them permission to take parts from one 777 and and put it in another 777. But another development in, in Russia to keep their now domestic aircraft fleet operating. They, they haven't seemed to have too much trouble at this point. They seem to have had a good pipeline of spare parts coming in, even though they're not supposed to be able to. But again, people point to Iran and that not being something that's terribly new or unexpected.
0: Right. There is precedent for being able to continue getting parts. Uzbekistan Airways is going to take some new aircraft and Jason and I are going to try and buy some of their old aircraft.
1: How much money we got? Can we pull together? I've
0: got at least $5 on me. They have been trying to sell a pair of 757s and a pair of 767s for years. I guarantee if we get Steve Giordano from Nomadic to fly it out, they'll let us have it for like 20 bucks and maybe like tickets to the opera or
1: something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we only mention this because Uzbekistan Airways has signed up for 12 more A320neo family aircraft, eight of the 320 variety and four of the 321neo to try to replace some of these older aircraft. Um, I I do remember years back that they would always have these tenders on the Uzbekistan website of trying to get rid of their Soviet-era aircraft. I, I can't find that anymore, but this is clearly a fleet that has been Fully or nearly fully modernized at this point. And it's, uh, it's interesting to see. But unfortunately, I, I don't think we're going to be able to scrounge up the money to buy any TU 154s out of Uzbekistan today. Ah, yeah, man. I okay. know. I know. Petromo Air needed that specific niche type in the fleet, but I don't think we can pull it off.
0: Okay. Well, we'll keep trying. Good news from United in, in the sense that it's just, it happened and, and they put out a little press release and, and we're all moving on because this whole thing is just, I can't wait to put this behind us. But United says that they beat the deadline by December 31st to retrofit all the Airbus fleet that they needed to retrofit for compliance with the new 5G C-band standards. So done and done.
1: Hey, great. And it wasn't even a press release. It was a little snippet in there like weekly or monthly sales email that I happened to get. I'm not even sure if this was a deadline that they were supposed to beat by last December 31st or this upcoming December 31st. I don't know. I don't care. But what it does prove is that this issue was so overblown that it seems to be so easy for these airlines to modify or replace their radio altimeters that the issue is just so blown out of proportion that they're just like, yeah, we did it. We beat it. No big deal. Life goes on. Okay. Yeah. In less
0: shruggy news, the folks at Zero Avia have finally flown their hydrogen powered Dornier 228 for the first time. Hey, that's nice. So some really cool stuff happening there. And a 19 fleet out of two.
1: Yeah. This isn't like one of those electric aircraft that you know, they, they charge up and it can seat one and a half people. This is a 19-seat aircraft. So, this, this is a big deal. But of course, we're still a long way from anything like this entering commercial service. They, they're they targeting hydrogen fuel cell power commercially by 2025. I think that's probably a bit optimistic, but this is a, a nice step in the, the the right direction for an aircraft that can actually hold people. A ten-minute flight out of Cotswold Airport in the UK last week, and so good job
0: to them. And looking forward to to seeing a bit more from them as they move forward with the certification, as well as what aircraft they're going to look to in the future for conversion, basically engine conversion to hydrogen engines. They're working towards deciding on which aircraft is going to be up next. So that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Jason, you have an
1: item about the Swiss that I would like to learn more about. Please tell me more. So I do have some news about the Swiss. And you may know that most of their aircraft in the Lufthansa group actually have, have names of favorite national parks or cities or, or locations they fly to, but the Swiss A two twenties, I don't believe they had names prior to a release that we got on yesterday, actually. But fear no more. Swiss is going to name twenty of its A220 100s and 300s after tourist areas and resorts that are in Switzerland. Isn't that nice? I am so excited about this because
0: I've just been saying for years, you know, it's about time Swiss names their A220
1: fleet. That's it. That's it. Regular listeners to the podcast. <laughs> yes, they're, they're going to name their A220s after Swiss tourist areas and resorts to help publicize far and wide the sheer variety of Switzerland's tourist landscapes. Uh, of course, I am reading from a press release there. Over 50 entries w- were received. They were assessed by a Swiss judging panel on their creativity, originality, and their authenticity and their connection to Swiss. And I'm not even going to attempt to read the list of winning destinations because I will butcher them horribly. That's that's the
0: only reason I wanted to talk about this.
1: I will not go there, but uh, what will happen is Ian will put them in the show notes and you can read them for yourself because I will not fall into that trap.
0: Oh, that is that is literally the only reason I let you put this in because I thought you were going to read me the list.
1: Sorry, but each one of them will enjoy their own physical aircraft naming ceremony within a Swiss hangar, two in Zurich, one in Geneva, over 2023. So they're they're making a big deal of this, which is interesting. Okay, yeah, hey, whatever. Yeah. But again, not reading any of these, but go read them for yourself. All right. Fine. Last and
0: least, the c 919s in the schedule for the first time, which means it might actually be in the commercial schedule in the near future. Then we can start talking about it. But it's going on a pair of media flights the end of next month. Not the even end of like, next.
1: Month. Oh, next week. It's, the, it's a month away. They popped into the schedule. I saw it. I got excited about it. I appreciated that China Eastern put them in the schedule as MU flights 9191 and 9192. So Clearly, somebody over there gives a damn that they're putting a new aircraft into service and that they're making a big deal about it on Twitter. And I, I honestly did not expect that from China Eastern because I don't even think they wanted these aircraft to begin with because they were supposed to be operating Under one of their subsidiaries to begin with, I think. And then they ended up at China Eastern and they're embracing it. And I I don't think these are media flights. I have been told off the record that they are technically the first commercial flights of the type, but they are not bookable at the moment. But if you try to book at the right time, maybe you might get lucky. They're going to cap the number of passengers on board. But I don't know. And I, I am oddly excited about this aircraft. Entering service. It's the first new clean sheet design we've seen commercially with a large aircraft of this size in a very long time, in a way that the ARJ twenty-one did not satisfy our <laughs> request for a new good aircraft. This one seems to actually tick a lot of the, the boxes both inside and out. And I'm excited about it, probably because I can't actually fly it anytime soon. You know, you want what you can't have and sure, I, I sure. Wanna, I want to fly this thing. All right, I'll leave it there. I don't want to take away any of your
0: excitement or this or for you. So I'm just going to leave it here. This has been episode 200. Next week, we will come back and talk a lot more about the final delivery of the Boeing 747. I hope to have a lot more to say about that after it has happened and anything else that comes up in the next week. There's sure to be something. I am Ian Pechnik here, as
1: always, with. Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening.